0: It's conventional wisdom. Individual weather events cannot be tied to climate change.
1: We can't attribute any particular weather event to climate change. What we do know is the temperature around the globe is increasing.
0: That was former President Barack Obama articulating that conventional wisdom in 2012. But was the conventional wisdom right? And is it still right today? Take an event like Hurricane Sandy, which battered the U.S. from Florida to Maine in that year.
1: This is an impressive, incredible cloud canopy. It is one of the largest, if not the largest, we've ever seen in the Atlantic hurricane bases.
0: Would it have been as destructive if greenhouse gas levels in the atmosphere were lower? And what about everyday weather, not just the most extreme events? Welcome back, well, the heat's gonna stay on, feeling more like August than September. Hi, everybody, we're still focusing on this winter weather advisory
1: in effect for Northern Connecticut. Our warm-up continues as we head into the weekend. In fact, it's gonna be the first weekend of the year in the 90s, and we're tracking the warmest temperatures we've seen so far this year.
0: My name is Katherine Rehimaki, and my guest today works to update conventional wisdom with state-of-the-art climate data. Ben Strauss is the CEO and Chief Scientist for Climate Central, a nonpartisan organization that conducts climate research and informs the public about key findings. Ben, thanks for joining me on All for Earth.
1: Thanks, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You're welcome. Let's start with that connection between weather and climate. Um, Climate Central has done a lot of targeted work at meteorologists. Um, Can you describe that program and what its motivations are?
1: Sure thing. We work with now around 800 uh, of the nation's TV meteorologists. We call them METs for short. Uh, That's about a third of the nation's total to help them integrate climate change into their regular daily weather forecasts and information. We send them every week uh, graphics which they can use on their broadcasts and we give them guidance on the climate science behind them. We feel that Telling a local story is a critical part of being an effective climate communicator. And working with a local and trusted messenger is another important part. So through this program, we're achieving both of those goals.
0: So, so can you talk a little bit about um, that relationship between climate and weather and if that um, understanding of the relationship has changed through time?
1: I think... It's uh, something that people have an easy time confusing.
0: Yeah.
1: Weather happens day to day. Weather is how a baseball batter performs today and tomorrow and the next day. Climate is his batting average over the whole season. And people do get confused. They say, hey, look, it, it, it was cold yesterday. There must not be climate change. But even the greatest hitter sometimes strikes out. That's the weather. Climate means that overall, we're getting warmer and warmer and warmer as we pour more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere.
0: So kind of paradoxically, they're different, but they're clearly related to each other. Um, And so it's understandable how um, there can be that confusion. So what is the research that you guys do trying to kind of differentiate but connect the two?
1: So we draw on research from the whole scientific community that shows all of the ways that the climate is influencing the weather. And sometimes you have even an individual weather event, an extreme event where you can make a connection. Imagine a baseball player on steroids. He hits more home runs. And then one time he hits a home run where the ball travels farther in the air than any home run before has ever traveled. We can link his use of steroids perhaps to the fact that his overall number of home runs has gone up just in the way we can link climate change to the fact that overall we're seeing more hot days. Mm -hmm. But that individual home run may also be linkable to steroids because it was so extraordinary individually. And in the same way, there are some extreme weather events that – Science can now tie to climate change and say climate has made this significantly more likely. And in a few rare instances, like the marine heat waves killing the Great Barrier Reef off of Australia, this event could not have happened without climate change.
0: And so really kind of what you guys are doing is using climate models to figure out, you know, in the absence of climate change, the steroids in this metaphor, right, um, that a particular heat wave would have been this much cooler um, or maybe um, this much less likely to have happened if not for that background um, warming that has happened.
1: That's right. Climate change is making extreme heat more likely. We run, well, there there are multiple methods, multiple lines of research that show that. And we find it's the case with extreme heat. We find it's the case with extreme precipitation. For example, um, the precipitation that Hurricane Harvey dumped on Houston was three times more likely because of climate change in our analysis. The year before, the rainfall that flooded Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 2016, I think it was, was significantly more likely because of climate change. And there was analysis showing that Hurricane Florence, its precipitation that caused so much trouble in North Carolina, more likely because of climate change. Same analysis applies to the heat waves that have been hitting Europe one after the other, and so forth and so on. So it's really becoming commonplace that we can link extreme weather to climate change.
0: What is Climate Central's role in all of this work? Um, Because you're one of many non-governmental organizations that are in sort of the climate change field. Um, So so what do you guys do um, sort of beyond just interacting with METS and sending them graphics?
1: So, we launched an effort uh, a number of years ago uh, called World Weather Attribution that began to take this science of extreme weather attribution to climate change and run analyses very rapidly so that within a few weeks or months of the extreme weather event, we could turn around and go to the media and public and say there was a link between climate change and Hurricane Harvey instead of waiting the normal academic cycle of a year or two when everyone forgot about it. Mm -hmm. Um, We did that for a number of years. Through that work, the National Academy of Sciences uh, did a special report that uh, basically confirmed that you can do this sort of attribution analysis. Independent scientists, without our involvement, started doing attribution of extreme events and doing it rapidly. And so after a number of years, we actually stopped that coordination Mm -hmm. because we had achieved our goal of changing the narrative from the then president of the United States, changing the narrative in leading media like The Times and The Post and The Economist um, and stimulating the broader scientific community to engage In the same exercise now we've become more interested in making the same kinds of linkages between um, climate change but instead of looking at these extreme extreme events looking more at your everyday extremes unusually warm days at different times of year a localized downpour but not on the scale of harvey or florence uh, things like that and we're also continuing research in Maybe the most rock solid of all areas in attribution, which is the influence of sea level rise on the damage caused by coastal flooding. So, for example, you go to Sandy, but frankly, any storm causing a coastal flood, that flood is deeper and more damaging because of human caused sea level rise. It's as simple as that. And you run a simulation of the storm as it occurred, and you run a simulation subtracting the roughly six inches of human-caused sea level rise uh, at the time that the storm occurred.
0: Right. You're a a scientist by training. Um, I'm a scientist by training. And um, I think what you're saying is sort of interesting, uh, a message about communication, which is that um, you are not directly communicating the science to the public, but you're using that intermediary. um, And and METS, aside from being trained in science, are also trained, obviously, in communication because they're on TV. Um, Has your understanding of what effective communication changed over your career as you've gotten involved in this work through Climate Central?
1: It absolutely has. At the start. I thought that effective science communications meant scientists learning how to give good interviews, give good speeches, be good on TV or write well.
0: (laughs) Speak louder and slower. (laughs) Speak louder and slower
1: with simpler words. And look, all of that's great. It's terrific. The more scientists we have who dedicate themselves to communicating in ways that are more accessible, the better. But that is not the whole of science communications. Most scientists didn't get into science because they were interested or skilled in communications, and that's fine. But they can still make major contributions by supplying the right science to the right people who in turn can communicate that science. And so one of the things I've learned is the importance of the messenger. Yeah. And so most of our work is actually finding the right messengers, not being great communicators as scientists, but getting the right science to the right messengers. And I would say another piece for scientists is often the research that we do for our peers and to publish in journals goes 90% of the way Mm -hmm. to what you need for powerful public communications or, or effective communications to policymakers. Often there's just one more calculation, one more figure, one more table yeah. that, if it were included, uh, would make a paper a much more powerful basis for reaching out. So that's some of the work we do as well, trying to connect with scientists and help them to understand in their current research what piece more can I do that would make this paper uh, a, an effective and powerful basis for reaching out to broad audiences.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about some of those graphics, which is a little awkward to do on a podcast, admittedly. Um, But, you know, even in the description, I think people can get a sense of how compelling these are. So uh, among them, for example, you uh, have comparisons of different cities that the climate of, let's say, Princeton, New Jersey is going to be like um, this southern city in 50 years or 100 years. Um, Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the graphics, the most compelling graphics you feel have been created and why that really resonates with people?
1: Yeah, graphics are a huge part of what we do. Um, First, because we work so much with TV. And by the way, a plurality of Americans still get their weather forecasts from their local TV weather forecaster, as hard as that is for some of us to believe. But humans are a very visual species. About 30% of the volume of our brain is for vision and visual processing. It's harder to know, but we think around 10% is for language and logic. Mm -hmm. So we've always felt that if we can express something with a picture, we'll go much farther uh, in communicating the challenge of climate change. Uh, And so... You know, one of the areas that's been most, effectively, uh, most effective visually has been showing projections of sea level rise because that's so dramatic to see a flood, to see that visual. Right. But there, there's a wide range of other things we do. And honestly, even if it's putting up pictures of mosquitoes or poison ivy or changing colors of leaves, that helps to embed for people – that this is a a real thing. We're talking about a tangible local thing that they've experienced. It's not just a a bunch of words or an abstraction.
0: Right. So let's talk about sea level rise because that's really where your science um, originally was based. And you, uh, maybe before becoming the CEO of Climate Central as one of the scientists, really worked hard on those sea level visualizations. What is it about sea level rise that has captivated your attention, and how do you try to get other people engaged in, in that story?
1: Yeah, I've, I've always felt that it's a great irony that I ended up getting into sea level rise because I am a mountain person mm-hmm. in my soul and in my background. and. Uh, I also, in my scientific training, I was much more focused on biodiversity in relatively wild and remote places. And here I am focusing on sea level rise in low, flat, coastal, urban places. Quite the opposite. But I got there because I came to feel that this is a highly strategic pathway for reaching a large public on climate change. One of our core principles of climate communication is that the more local and personal you can make the story, the more it's going to reach people and the more it's going to cut across political tribes. Because in the quiet of your study or your office, no matter what you're supposed to say in public, if you're reading that the water is getting higher and higher Mm -hmm. on that stick in the ground next to the shore, you have to take that seriously the, the uh, safety, longevity, and value of your home or your business depends on getting this right. So you have to put down your political stuff and get into the practical. So being very local is one of our core principles. And sea level rise is, in my view, the most localizable of all climate impacts because I can literally say something different about the risk faced by two different houses on the same block. Um, It's also highly visual, and we've created photorealistic imagery of different sea level projections in different iconic places around the world that 100 million people have seen. We've had more than 100 million page views on those, rather. Um, Also, there's a very simple mental model to sea level rise. I think people understand that if it gets warmer, ice melts and the sea level rises. It's right. very simple to understand. And it, uh, it feels like a one-way process. It basically is. Of course, it does wiggle around, up mm-hmm. and down a little bit. Um, just like the tides rise and fall and waves rise and fall there are also currents and things which change sea level on an annual or decadal basis. But basically, sea level is just rising. But temperatures are much more variable. You have a hot year, a cold year, it bounces all around, it's much harder to pick up the signal and the noise. So, and sea level rise is an existential threat. I think you tell people more heat waves are coming, more downpours are coming, they think, well, that's um, alarming, and it poses a challenge. But I'm going to weather it. It will come. It will go.
0: I have air conditioning. I uh, have umbrellas.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But you know, my house is below the high tide line. Not so much. Right. I'm e- either my community is building a seawall or a levee, or else I'm gone. And it's easy to imagine communities being gone. So this combination of local, visual, simple mental model, existential. Um, it, it's a, uh, a real collection that has made sea level rise one of the principal ways uh, through which people understand the threat of climate change.
0: Right. So, you guys have these um, kind of beautiful map graphics. Uh, Beautiful aesthetically, not necessarily in terms of the message, but um, showing, you know, with this much temperature rise, these are the flooded areas in, say, Manhattan. Um, as you said, the uh, iconic places. Um, prior to computer graphics, I mean, is there uh, are, are there sea level stories that have been told through history that um, kind of illustrate how compelling this particular interaction with humans and climate change is.
1: Yes, I've recently discovered that, in fact, the very oldest stories we have in all of human culture and history are climate change stories, Mm -hmm. and most of them are sea level rise stories. If you go to Australia, there are at least 21 sites all around the margins of the continent where Aboriginal people tell stories about landforms that no longer exist. And in the stories, the ocean rises to cover those Mm landforms. Well, through modern geology, we can detect those landforms under the water. And because of our reconstruction of sea level rise since the last ice age, 20,000 years ago, sea levels were 400 feet lower than they are today. And we basically had 400 feet of sea level rise between 15,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago. And we can chart when each of those landforms was drowned. So we know that these stories told by Aborigines range from 8,000 to 13,000 years old. Now stop to think about that for a moment because if you Google... The world's oldest story, you, you get Gilgamesh, mm-hmm. which was written down four or 5,000 years ago. And it talks about the flood, by the way, which um, most of us know is Noah's flood, which probably happened around 8,000 years ago, but has been preserved now in writing for four or 5,000 out of those 8,000 years. Yet here we have these aboriginal stories that are 10,000 years old and have been preserved only through an oral tradition without writing. How traumatic was the loss of their ancestral land for them to remember it faithfully for 10,000 years? That tells me that losing our land to climate change, to sea level rise, is one of the most traumatic things that we can ever Imagine, it's the most remembered thing in all of human history. In the old stories, many of those stories basically said humanity did something wrong. Hmm. Right? We hunted the forbidden fish. Yeah. We were wicked and we sinned. And then the gods punished us. But what was happening at that time was – and that's wrong. In fact, there was a completely natural climate change happening at that time. But now, in the present, it's right. What we're, <laughs> right. Do- what we're doing, it- it's us who indeed are causing the seas to rise. This time, they're likely to rise much faster, and we have much more to lose. So I think these ancient stories represent a very powerful warming a very powerful warning about what we're getting ourselves into now.
0: Do you worry about kind of having that overwhelmingly negative message? I mean, it. Um, when, when I teach about climate change, I feel the, um, you know, overall pulse in the room sort of <laughs> Oh, getting or the the aura of the room getting really depressed. And you know, you're trying to communicate this every day. Um and, and you're talking here about that the the sea level message is one of profound loss, ten thousand years worth of PTSD on these cultures. Um how do you manage that? Um and do you um try to find positive spins on the, the scientific messaging.
1: Yeah. Well, the good side here is that this time it is us and that means we can do something about it. Yeah. There's nothing our ancestors could have done about coming out of the last ice age and the sea level rise that happened then. But now we are in control. So I see that as a great positive. And when we present maps and images that reflect future projections of sea level rise, particularly the longer term ones that connect to the legacy that our time will leave Mm -hmm. to future generations and how will they remember us? We put side by side images of what happens if we sharply restrict our greenhouse gas emissions and transition to a clean economy versus what happens if we don't. And when you put those images next to each other, you show that we have power, we have a choice, and our choices can make a difference. I'd also add that in our general work with TV Mets, for example, we also provide content on things like solar power and wind power, which Mm -hmm. is terrific because really, that's the weather giving us power. We're changing the weather, but the weather is giving us power and it's a great source for optimism how rapidly the technology is advancing and the prices are falling on cleaner sources of energy and many other approaches for reducing emissions or taking carbon back out of the atmosphere and finally i'll say that through most of our communications and even our sea level work when you really localize the problem You take that big, the whole world is doomed frame off and you're framing it as here is a local challenge. It's much more digestible that way. Mm -hmm. People want to roll up their sleeves and do something about it when you frame it as a local challenge as opposed to an overwhelming global thing.
0: So so let's finish there just talking about kind of what from your perspective is needed to have meaningful action on climate change. Um it, and it sounds like from what you're saying that we need a critical mass of everyone Taking action, rolling up our sleeves, and doing something—is <laughs> um, that kind of the perspective of of Climate Central? And you know, how do you make that happen? It, it's local stories. It sounds like.
1: Well, first I should say that we are a non-advocacy, non-political organization. Yep. So we don't take a position on a particular um, policy choice. Sure. But of course, we do feel that climate change represents a civilizational threat, and we are hopeful to encourage informed action that is proportional to the threat that climate change represents. We think we reach people most effectively on this local level, but ultimately the responses that are going to be proportional to the challenge are going to have to happen at the level of whole nations and the globe in order to control our global emissions. And so we are certainly hopeful for people to take action in their own local communities, that's quite appropriate and needed. But in the big picture, we would like to see the public understanding shift as a whole, and we would like to see the priority that the public places on climate change as an issue Rise higher, again, up to the point that is appropriate for the gravity of the threat.
0: Yeah, and and, and so let me just draw a connection back to you know where we talked about for um, the indirect communication, right? Communicating through mets. I mean, this seems like another example of maybe communicating through an intermediary, which is the general public, right? That. You are trying to motivate people, who are then going to be the advocacy um, group, albeit not necessarily organized in that way. But um, for for people to be talking to their members of Congress, to be talking to their local um, their their local representatives, so that action happens on a broader scale. Is that a, a good way to describe it?
1: Well, we don't have any specific strategy targeting any elected representative. Right. But we are trying to make sure that both the public and decision makers and leaders of all stripes are getting the message that this is a high priority. And one of the things we see in the polling on public opinion around climate change is that while increasingly more and more Americans recognize climate change, recognize it's caused by humans, are concerned about it, and strongly support solutions, it remains a relatively low priority. And most people don't think that it will personally affect them. So those are the places where we try and inject ourselves, helping people to understand that this personally is going to affect them, the places that they live in, work in, and love their children, it's going to affect you, and, um, and, and that's a pathway to making it a kitchen table issue.
0: And not just that it's going to, but that it is now, right? That, and that events that they have experienced, the weather that they're experiencing today is affected by climate change.
1: That's right. And and we're moving beyond the past work on extreme weather event attribution to looking at everyday weather. This research is still in the pipeline. But in a very broad sketch, it turns out that on a very regular basis, we experience weather that is made much more likely by climate change. So there's a future maybe within a year from now, where we'll Be able to say, yeah, that sticky Tuesday you just had, (laughs) that was three times as likely because of climate change. And help people to understand, yes, this is happening now. It's happening in the future. It's affecting your crop yield today. It's affecting your forest fire risk today. There's a lot of things which are in action today. And so by... Communicating that message again and again and again through different messengers and pathways, we think we can help to raise the priority, raise the urgency with people, make this a kitchen table issue that people understand affects them in important ways, just like jobs and education and health care right. on a perennial basis. And I think that's the level of priority and attention this issue needs for us to mount the truly sustained effort over decades that it's going to take to reduce the threat to where it is more manageable.
0: Okay. Well, I think that's a great place to um, wrap up our conversation. Ben, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I think it's uh, really profound what you guys are working on and I wish you the best of luck
1: moving forward. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it, Catherine. Thanks for having me.
0: Ben Strauss is the CEO and Chief Scientist at Climate Central. He is a leading expert on sea level rise and has developed some great visualizations on the Climate Central website. You can learn more about their work at climatecentral.org or on Twitter at Climate Central, or you can see some of their work through your local TV weather forecast. Please subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, be
1: well. All for Earth is a production of the Princeton Environmental Institute and the Princeton University Office of Communications, in collaboration with Princeton's Council on Science and Technology and assistance from the Office of Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. Our executive producer is Margaret Koval, and our audio engineer and editor is Daniel Kearns. The opinions expressed here represent the views of the individuals involved and not those of the University. Princeton podcasts are available on all major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and the Google podcast apps.